The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are uh, obviously, um, if you're familiar with how we work through uh, our preaching as a church, we pick up a book of the Bible and we just kind of preach all the way through it. And this year we are preaching through Luke, and so we happen to be in Luke 15. Um, I'm not sure as well if you're familiar with kind of times of the year, and I know that Christmas is coming up, but when we start uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving is generally the start of what's called Advent. Advent is a season in the Christian calendar where we um, talk a lot or read scripture passages about anticipating the birth of Jesus. So it's not just kind of like, surprise, Jesus' birthday, like we anticipate it. Like we talk about why is Jesus born? Why did God send Jesus? All those types of things. And so that would have been reflected in the service earlier. Um, And so when we get to Luke 15, um, you might be kind of wondering, uh, are we going to change our teaching on Sunday mornings uh, for Christmas? And we decided this year just to preach through Luke 15. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to find that it connects us into the purpose or um, the heart of what Advent is all about. I'm going to read a portion of it. Um, if you do not have a Bible, we have them up front. Um, all the verses will be on the screen behind me as we preach through this. Luke 15 is a section of three parables, and uh, they're all kind of, um, propaganda is too strong a term, but uh, stories with a point, a very uh, focused point on on Jesus um, and the people who are opposing him uh, is the point. And so I'm going to start us here in verses one and two, and then we're going to look this morning, I'm going to talk about it in a second, the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 1 to 2, and then jump down a few verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Now many days later, this younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, how many he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. Uh, against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he could but, but, but the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe 
and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and, sh and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what was these things, uh, what these things meant. And he said to him, "Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound." But he was angry and refused to go in. The father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, "Look, these many years I have served you." And, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has de devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed and the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Father, as we look at these words and consider this parable, would we receive the invitation into your heart? Would we hear your word of invitation to you? Would we experience your grace and love this morning? Would you continue to be with us? Jesus name. Amen. So what I want to do is I just want to draw a little bit of a picture for us as we consider why this parable for Advent. Um, first of all, uh, Christmas is generally a time of celebrating. In chapter 15 of Luke, there are three things that are lost, three things that are found, and three celebrations that happen. So, you know, it's kind of like thematically it connects, right? We celebrate at Christmas. There's celebration in the passage. But I think more importantly, we think about Christmas, we think about going home. I'm not sure what that means for you, whether you actually want to go home, whether you like the idea, or you're creating your new home so that you can go home to something new and leave what was bad, bad behind. Whatever it is, we think of Christmas, we think of the holidays, we think of home. And here in this passage, there is a stark and startling picture of what home means for Jesus, what home means for God, and the invitation, ultimately, of what Advent, Jesus' arrival, is all about. I do want to acknowledge that I'm doing a little bit of some plagiarism here. Um, we are preaching through this passage over the next few weeks, and rather than kind of going, we typically will go through a passage, just kind of go through it, we're going to circle back through this passage multiple times. And we're going to look at different characters. We're going to look at the prodigal son this morning. Um, if we could put up, I have a picture up here, uh, a painting in one brand. So we have here kind of three characters that we're going to look at. You have the prodigal son, Neil Down. We're going to look at him this morning. Um, next week, Peter's going to teach, uh, preach for us on the older brother. He's off to the right. You've heard about him in the passage. And then kind of running through this passage in many ways, the center figure is the father here who's bent over his son. The prodigal son is a parable that has an enduring dramatic value to us. There are about 30 parables in the Gospels. 
Um, this is one of them, obviously. Um, and yet it tends to be the one that most people know, remember, associate with Jesus, have heard of in some way or another. Right? We have this painting by Rembrandt that we just looked at um, during the Renaissance period, um, you know, many hundred years ago. Um, there were basically kind of four main parables that were painted, and the prodigal son was certainly most of all of those, featured in more, paint, more paintings than, than most. Prodigal son shows up in two Shakespeare plays. Prodigal son shows up um, even within pop culture today. Right, uh, U2 has a song about the prodigal son. Um, Nick Iron Maiden did a song about the prodigal son. Um, Mike Kid Rock did a song about the prodigal son. <laughs> uh, he's everywhere. Um, Tim Keller obviously has written a book that we painted out called "The Prodigal God." Um, and then a guy named uh, Henry Nowen is also, he wrote a book called The, Prodigal, uh, the Return of the Prodigal Son. I've actually put copies of that out there, and that's kind of where I need to confess some of my plagiarism. I am taking a lot of ideas from that book. Uh, that's free for you. If it's on the front, uh, if there's any copies left, if there's not, uh, let me know. I'm happy to get more. He, he gets into some kind of artistic descriptions of God as, a, as mother, so if that's a problem for you, just heads up. But it's an incredibly powerful book. I would highly recommend you read it. Um, if we get out, if we run out of copies, I'd gladly get more for us. But the prodigal son, we want to focus in this morning on just the son, the the younger brother. I'm not sure if you guys are okay with it. We're going to keep calling him the prodigal prodigal son. Really, we mean the younger son. I think as we work through over the next few weeks, we'll see that everybody's a prodigal in their own particular way. But we're going to focus just to going to use the term prodigal son. And here's what I want to say the invitation of this passage is. And then we'll kind of just kind of work through the story. It was the prodigal son part of it. The prodigal son invites us into the heart of God, which is our true heart. I think that's what we're seeing, not only through this whole parable, but specifically with the son, the younger brother. Jesus is in a context where he's trying to basically um, show how the religious professionals at the time had really gotten the heart of God wrong, and so he's been having a face-off with them. That's what we read about at the beginning, at the top of the passage. He was hanging out with the sinners, which is basically anybody who didn't kind of fit their, like, religious mold of, you know, we all wear the same clothes, we all eat the same food, we all go to the same clubs, that type of thing. Anybody who was outside the religious norm, and Jesus tells them this story as a way of inviting them not just to see who they, who they are, but ultimately to see who the Father is, who is clearly God himself. So we're going to pick up and we're just going to kind of work through this story, just kind of make a few notes on each of the kind of various stages of the story. Pick up in verse 11. We want to talk about just the father, the, the prodigals leaving. These are not going to be rocket science points. And he said, that's Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And we're going to talk about the younger one. And the younger one of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, that is the father, divided his property between the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered the property in reckless way. So there's a part of this where we read this, and I'm not sure, we have to kind of fill in some cultural distance, right? About 2,000 years of distance, so we want to fill in a little bit of some cultural gaps. 
when we think of kind of like you reach 18, the idea is, you know, 18 to 25, kind of into your 20s. At some point, you are gathering yourself up and you move out of your parents' house. That's kind of an American idea. That's not what the ancient world would have thought, nor is it, frankly, what the majority of the world does. It's largely kind of a European-American idea. Go to South America, go to Africa, go to Asia, and you see this with our friends and neighbors who are from those countries. Much more like a, a family household where everybody, multi-generations live. It's not the idea that we carry necessarily, but it's what was in, in the ancient world. So for a, young, for a son of any kind, let alone the younger son, to come to his father and say, hey, I want half my stuff because you're going to die one day. I just want to skip to the end. I want my stuff and I want to get out of here. Effectively, what he is saying to his father is, I want you dead. I want to act like you're dead. And I want to live off what I'm going to get when you're dead. How, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had anybody say, like, I wish you were dead. But this is like the nth degree of saying, I wish you were dead. Not only that, but when his father divides his, like his, his property in half. I mean, first of all, I, I just kind of, when I get in the story, I just think about, like, First of all, dividing my property and selling half of it, like all the, the labor involved with that. So he does all that, gives that, I guess, money to his son, whatever that is. The father has a right to live off of his younger son's proceeds. He kind of like he becomes the mafia boss. I mean, not to say that he's a mafia boss, but, you know, kind of like that idea. He lives off the proceeds of what his younger his son would have made them. That, that's his retirement. So not only is the youngest who's saying, and I want you to feel it. I don't want you to have anything of mine. I want to be done. And in fact, what the younger brother is saying is, I want and I am going to reject everything about you. I renounce you and I want to get out of here. I, I want to make my own life on my own terms. He leaves this house of the father. We're going to get to talking about the father. But you can imagine, again, we said this a few days, a few weeks ago, parables are here for you to, kind of like an art installation. You want to stand inside them and just kind of look around and what does this piece have to offer me? How do I experience this part of the parable? And here we just want to consider the father in this parable at this point. What, what would have been his experience? You know, in Jesus' telling of this, we have just earlier in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3 where the Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You can imagine that being said in some way or another about this younger son. Here is my son. And if you're a parent in the room, my kids, I delight over them. But this is even higher. Than, I mean, I delight over my kids. They're great. But... You know, we all live in the same house, and I'm a sinner, and I experience them as a sinner would experience children. Imperfectly, right? Here is a perfect father who is saying over his son, I delight in you. I want you here. You, All of who you are, you make me happy. And this is, in effect, I think, what the son is rejecting. The son is rejecting, I don't want you. Whatever the background of the story is, his heart has been turned away from his father. 
and he has to leave. I got to get out of here. And he goes to a far country where if his home is what was unconditional love, this is my beloved son. The far off country is I'm going to spend myself to the bone. Squanders his property in recklessness. Right? He is giving himself. He goes to a place where he has to prove himself. And doesn't this feel like what we experience in our American culture? We, we have to, we live in this constant anxiety of, am I enough? Have I done enough? Have I proved myself enough? Have I earned enough? Oh my gosh, I need to do more. That's where the son wants to be. That's the prodigal son's story. He cannot live in a house of unconditional love. We all leave and we all yearn to find ourselves. We all have this deep need to prove ourselves, both to other people, to parents, good or bad, to ourselves. We yearn for it. We all take this same prodigal son story of going to a far-off country. So what happens when he gets back? Verse 14 to 17, the prodigal's awakening. And when he had spent everything, picking up where the sun left off, parable left off, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I mean, it's hard for us to kind of fully get our heads around this, but I'm sure that you've heard this before. Pigs in the ancient world, especially for Jews, were associated not only with unclean dynamics and they were unclean food, but they were often associated with kind of dark demonic experiences or entities, right? So Jesus has previously sent demonic spirits into pigs and they ran off a cliff, right? So that, that that's kind of in the story. I imagine for an ultra-patriot fan, this would be something akin to like, I am going to go and move to Philly, and then when things get really hard, I have to work at work for the Eagles and tend to the concession stands at the Eagles Stadium, like something like that, right? I, I'm not a sports guy, so I don't know who the ultimate rivals are. Can can you confirm this for me or correct me? Who, close enough? I'm within range, right? Imagine being a Pats family. Like so, I I, I uh, my family lives down south. I went to Auburn University. If you guys are familiar with that, Auburn and Alabama, same thing, right? We all have those. Alliances. I had friends in high school who were like, my uncle's going to give me this or that or whatever, um, but not if I go to Auburn. You know, they were like so, div- and I'm like, dude, they didn't even go to college. Like, what are they even talking about? So, anyhow, it's that idea to the nth degree, right? Here is the son who's rejected all of what his father stands for. He's gone to prove himself. He's gone to prove himself in a far off country and has shown that he is not able to live up to the promise. I'll prove myself. He crushes under it and finds himself working effectively, feeding the enemy of his Jewish family. Money and friends, they have all offered him a promise 
if you spend enough with us, if you live enough with us, if you give us enough, whether it's your money, your body, your time, whatever it is, we will fulfill. And yet at the end of the rope, all of those friends, all of those promises, every one of them has come up empty. He's left it all for them, and he's lost everything with them. Imagine all the voices that he would have heard. Promising. You will get what you're after with us. You'll get what you want with me. Right? This is kind of how brands work. Right? This is not too dissimilar to like when you buy a brand, you're buying a story that you tell about yourself. Right? If I buy Starbucks coffee, I'm somebody who cares about coffee. I somebody who cares about the environment or whatever it is that Starbucks is doing these days. Right? If I buy this brand, it, I'm a part of this story that the brand tells me, right? That I have you guys ever seen this movie? A movie recently came out called Jordans or Air. No, it's Air. It's about Air Jordans. About the history of how Jordan shoes came to be. Great movie, by the way. Fantastic. I didn't know in the '80s, Adidas were all the rage, and people bought Adidas because that's what the basketball players wore, and it was a big risk to get Jordan on Nike because Nike. It was not the name, the big name. They were like third in the, or like way down the market in terms of like value. When we buy brands, like when we buy like a Jordan shoe, we're buying. There's something about Michael Jordan's story that's true about me. It's the same in this parable. He's chasing after a promise of a story to say something about who he is, and it all fails. All of it lets him down. This is how we all live in a way to prove ourselves, to earn love, to prove that we're worthy of love. Henry Nouwen has this to say. Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world, right, this far-off country, than to God. A little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits. A little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or thrust me down. Often, I'm like a small boat in an ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. The younger son is living out this reality that we run after people, places, and things, asking, do you love me? And none of them will satisfy. I am the prodigal son. You are the prodigal son. Every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. The younger son becomes fully aware that he is lost when none of his surroundings will love him. In fact, he begins to come to his senses when he realizes that he's lost his sonship. He's lost the dignity of belonging to his father's house. He realizes, I'm not made, this is not what I'm made for. I'm not made for this. So that's where we're going to turn here. But his story is not finished. The prodigal's path. Pick, picking up here in verse 17, repeating a little bit, and we're going to cut off in the middle of verse 20. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father 
and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have had this situation. I have it all the time where you have a difficult conversation or there's something you need to talk through with somebody and you rehearse the conversation in your head. Does anybody do that? Where you're like, I'm, they're going to say this, Ava, 100%. We, we do this all the time, right? We're all like, I'm going to have this conversation. I'm like, I'm going to say this. They're going to say that. And then I'm going to, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to win. Get whatever, right? whatever it is. So what am I doing in that? I'm making an assumption about somebody what somebody's like, right? It might be, imagine I have to confront Dave about, Dave, you can't shave your face anymore. You need to grow your beard. We've all had that conversation with Dave, right? We've all. <laughs> and I know something about Dave where I'm like, okay, Dave's going to be really kind of like, you know, he's a very kind of gentle person. So he's noncommittal. I'm going to make assumptions. Then I'm going to have to really make my case. No, Dave, you really need to grow your, your beard out because blah, blah, blah. Making assumptions about him and then kind of situating my argument to convince him to grow his beard, which thankfully he did. <laughs> Dave, have you ever been a sermon illustration in the middle of the sermon? Every week, yeah. <laughs> just have such an inviting face. That's effectively what this son is doing here. Right. He's he's creating. All right, I'm going to go to my father. Right. Serving these pigs is the worst, at least in my father's house. There's something that I can do. And I'm, I know that he's like a generally nice guy, but I, I, I need to I need to tell him this is what I want. Negotiate. So this is how I'm going to do it. So you can imagine him on this pathway. Right. This isn't just kind of a text that he sends. He's walking home from a far off country. So you can imagine it's weeks maybe a month or two, that he's walking, he's, he's cultivating this whole argument in his head. But there's one problem. He is making all these assumptions about his father because he's forgotten what his father's really like. He is, in effect, trying to cre create a story where he negotiates with his father, figures out how to get his father on his terms, how to kind of sneak around and kind of get a, a deal with his dad. It's a repentance for sure, but it's kind of a self-serving repentance where he has to prove himself to get his father's love. He's adopted the way of thinking in the far off country where he has to prove himself. He's forgotten the unconditional love of his father. Henry Nouwen has this to say. Receiving forgiveness requires a total willingness to let God be God and do all the healing, all the restoring, all the renewing. As long as I want to do even a part of that myself, I end up with a partial, with partial solutions, such as becoming a hired servant. He's like, I know who my father is enough to know that he'll take me back. But will he take me back as a son? Um, eh, not likely. But he might take me as a servant. We all do this. We all think of how can we negotiate with God so that we're back on God's good terms, but, you know, God really does need kind of a good answer for why we did X, Y, and Z. Why did you do that? Why did you go there? Why did you feel that? Why were you angry? Why did you, 
experience that, blah, blah, you know, you fill in the blank. There's always a why, and we always think God needs an answer for that. We have to prove ourselves off to God. We have to satisfy. There's somehow like this low-grade anger that God has that's directed at us that we kind of have to kind of put in a box and manage. But to experience, Jesus has already talked to us about in the, in the Gospel of Luke, what it's like to experience this Father's heart. Said back in Luke 6, where he, the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount type stuff. To experience this radical, unending fountain of unconditional grace directed at you, to be in that kingdom, to be in that house, to understand that Father, is to experience hunger and yet be completely satisfied. It is to be completely poor and yet completely provided. It is to have enemies that you know who they are and you love them. It is to be rejected by the world and yet completely accepted by God. That is the, the heart experience of knowing this unconditional love. So let's talk about this home before we move on. The prodigal's home, verse 20 to 24. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoe on his feet and bring a fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and alive again. He was lost and found, and they began to celebrate. So let's just put ourselves back in the ancient world of this father. We'll talk about the father more in a couple of weeks, but the father has now been publicly humiliated by his son's request for half the proceeds, takes it and go. Imagine what we've gone around town about this father. Assumptions that would have been made about him. Projections about his character. Projections about his family life. And now, here's the father. You can almost kind of picture it in like a sitting on the... I mean, they didn't have front porches, but you get the idea. Sitting on the front porch and sees kind of cresting over the hill the shape of his son. I mean, you have to have loved somebody deeply. You can see their silhouette on the horizon. That's that's my son. And it's not what you want now. Can you believe it? It's none of that kind of dropping of the face. Go tell the older brother. Look at the tra- cat dragged in. It is there is my son. And he's not close enough yet. So let me run and get him. And in the ancient world, that would have been absolutely embarrassing for a father, the head of a whole household, to run out. Run just in period, in, in general. It would have had to have been some sort of life-threatening emergency. This is not a life-threatening emergency. But to him, to his heart, to his yearning and love for his younger son, it is an emergency. I must run to him. I must get him. I must have him near. And so here's a son. I've embarrassed my father. I'm 
going through the mental loops, okay, I'm going to say this and this. And you can imagine kind of the situation. I stumbled over reading the pastoral because I kind of threw this in there. He's like, okay, I have to explain myself to my father. Dad, he's got the, he's got the, you know, the pre-planned speech. And basically, like, I've, I, what did my notes say? I've sinned before heaven and before you. And before he can even say anything else, the father is embracing it. I can't have you. No, we're not going to have any of this explanation. No negotiating. No, you will not earn a single lick of whatever's coming. And what is coming is my unconditional, undying, always and forever love. It must hold you immediately. Sonship restored. The ring, the robe, that's all what that means. A celebration akin to a wedding. My son is back to me. I can't believe it. He is returned from the dead. This is the heart of God for you and me. We come here, we kind of shuffle in, hopefully kind of breathing off the stress of the week. This is the heart of the Father that draws us together. Whether it's here, another church, whatever. The Father's heart is that even when you and I were in that far off country, we had a space in His heart. Even when you and I had squandered everything, we had a space in His heart. Even when you and I were walking the confused path back to God, we had a space in His heart. And even when you and I try to negotiate our way back into God's family, we have a space in His heart. And this story is not just like if you're not a Christian coming to Christ. This is the constant story of the Christian life. We are constantly kind of taking little excursions in one way or the other into the foreign country. I don't mean a foreign country like they're bad. I mean like a far-off country from the parable. And always being wooed back to this Father's heart. This is the Father's heart that invites us. Not his stuff, his delight. Unending, constant, absolute, unearnable love. It is a love that is so difficult to get our heads around that we have to, hopefully, once a week, come together, hear about it, sing about it, eat at the table together, bring it into our minds so that we are shaped by it because each week we go and we think, I can earn it again. And we constantly need to be reminded, no, this is a love that is an unending heart of grace for you and me. Which is, in fact, what Advent is all about. I just want to even put up a final link here. We have here at the beginning of the Christmas story the promise of Jesus to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for I have you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of God forever. You'll notice in the promise to Mary, there is a shape of a prodigal son. A son 
who is sent out from his father's house, who leaves his father's house so that, not that he can reject his, his father, but so that he can bring home those who have rejected him. There is space still in the father's house, in the father's heart. The son in Christmas, when we celebrate it, he's the perfect prodigal son. The one who goes out of God's heart to bring God's people back to him. So that we too can experience the father saying over us, this is my beloved daughter, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's at the heart of what Christmas is getting. That is what the Father invites us to in Christmas. Let's pray. Father, your heart is our true home. And so as we look at a portion of this parable, I pray that this Advent season we would experience more deeply, more richly, your invitation to your heart of unending, unearnable, free love to us. Would you give us your spirit so that we would be awakened into your newness of life? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.